Welcome to Profiles. I'm Gina Asher. Profiles is a weekly program that introduces members of our community, as well as notable visiting artists, scholars, and entertainers, to the WFIU audience. Our guest today is Don Fisher, radio voice of the Indiana University Hoosiers, who for more than 40 years has called basketball and football games and who anchors telecasts for the Indianapolis Colts preseason games. You may not know his name, but you may have heard his voice. And then went back in, 19 for him. Here comes Riddell Jones, three seconds, two seconds. Riddell all the way outside to Watford, three on the way. Oh, it went in, it went in, and Indiana wins the ball game. Christian Watford with a three, and the Hoosiers have knocked off the number one ranked Kentucky Wildcats. Unbelievable. Welcome, Don Fisher. Thank you, Gina. I appreciate it. That was the December 2011 game between IU and the University of Kentucky when Christian Watford's last-second shot landed IU a squeaker win over the arch enemy, who was (laughs) then ranked number one in the nation. And it came at a time when IU had suffered a real drought of such wins. Mm -hmm. So you sounded a bit excited there. Did you have any idea your excitement would result in a clip that would be heard and listened to on YouTube more than 100,000 times? (laughs) No. No, you never really think about those kinds of things when you're doing a ball game. Uh, The truth of the matter is it's a very spontaneous thing. That's what play-by-play is all about, Uh, and you're trying to be the eyes for your radio audience, you know, Um, and and so basically play-by-play is basically spontaneous verbal skills with what you see on the floor or the or the field or whatever the case may be. And you can't plan those kinds of things. You, you never know when it's going to happen. Uh, you, you're in the excitement of the ball game yourself. Uh, so honestly, how it comes out is how it comes out. You're really never sure. Well, after 40 years of being in this business, you have some expertise for sure. And this is just a few seconds of, of your career. You've covered... 1,700 IU football and basketball games, seven bowl games, five NCAA basketball Final Fours, four NCAA championship games, two NIT championship games. Have I left anything out? Uh, that's that's a pretty good statement there as far as the things that I've done, especially for Indiana. There's no doubt about that. So tell us about your, your path to this. Was young Don Fisher calling playground games, talking into a hairbrush and cupping your ear? Or did you come to this a little later, maybe um, after some high school athletics? Well, uh, the truth of the matter is I never, I mean, I always kind of, I revered guys I heard on the radio, Harry Carey's and the Dan Kelly's, who was the St. Louis Blues announcer. I'm not a hockey fan, but I loved listening to that guy. And I grew up listening to a lot of Pittsburgh Pirate games on KDKA out of Pittsburgh. Even though I'm from Northern Illinois, KDKA had a 50,000-watt uh, uh, station that you could hear at night uh, where I lived. And uh, so, and I was a Pirate fan because the first Little League game I ever saw was 1956, and I was 10 years old, and Roberto Clemente was a rookie. And uh, he's one of my he's my favorite all time baseball player. And uh, in that game, he went three for five at the plate. He uh, scored on a double by another player from first base. Uh, He had an amazing uh, ability to hit bad pitches. 
And in that particular game, and one of the things that people don't know about him was he had a tremendous arm. He played right field for the Pirates his entire career. And that day he threw a guy out at the plate from about, well, it was pretty deep right field. And he threw this ball on a line almost to the plate and never hit the ground right into the catcher's glove. And they tagged the guy out for the out. From that point on, as a 10-year-old, he was ingrained in my mind as the best player I'd ever seen. And um, he lived up to that through the years that uh, that he played for the Pirates. He was he was a phenomenal player, and I've got a lot of memorabilia from Roberto Clemente in my home. So that's that's kind of how I got started uh, thinking about baseball and and listening to baseball games, those kinds of things. And I, when I got bored in the outfield in summer baseball leagues or something like that, I would do a play-by-play in my mind like I was a radio announcer. But uh, nobody ever heard me do it or anything like that. It was just one of those things that I did. So how did you go from killing time in the outfield to being <laughs> on the radio? Well, it's kind of a long story, but the short version of it is that I got out of high school. I was not a great student, uh, didn't apply myself like I should have. Got out of high school, had about eight different jobs, ended up uh, working for the railroad, the CB&Q, the Chicago, Burlington, Quincy Railroad, as a ticket clerk from 9 o'clock at night till 6 o'clock in the morning. So that was my shift. And about and when they hired me, they said they were going to hire a weekend guy, but I would have to work the weekends for a, you know maybe up to a month or something like that uh, until they hired this person. Seven months later, they hired the guy. I had worked seven months without a day off. During that period of time, and I mean literally, I had one Sunday off uh, in that seven-month period of time. But during that time, I realized, what am I doing? I'm working here for the railroad. At that time, the railroad was considered to be a halfway decent job. But, you know, you're making $2.34 an hour, and it doesn't seem like you're going anywhere, especially from 9 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning, and you barely see another human being because you sold tickets for, for trains and things like that. But your primary job was doing bills of lading, uh, sorting mail. Uh, there were so many different things that you did, and you did it all by yourself. I was the only guy in the ticket clerk in that shift. So at any rate, I'm, I'm one night sitting there in the middle of the night. Uh, it's a slow period of time. And I have a sport magazine with me. And Sport Magazine was the competitor of Sports Illustrated back in the day. And I had this sport magazine. The reason I had sport magazine because it was cheaper than Sports Illustrated <laughs> because it was just, you know, and it was a pretty good sport magazine. But on the back inside cover of this magazine, there was a ad for a home correspondence school in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Career Academy was the name of the school. And it was a broadcasting school. And the very headline on the top of that page was, how would you like to become a sportscaster? And you said, yes, I would like to. And I said, that sounds like me. <laughs> so at any rate, I signed up for the uh, the classes and uh, took this home correspondence course. They sent you 20 record albums. Uh, if people, you know, these, this day and age don't even know what a record album is for the most part. But they sent you 20 record albums and you learned uh, their radio courses through this re- these record albums. And then you had a tape. The, the one thing that you got for your um, $895 of uh, education that you spent your money for, the one thing you got out of it was, that was worthwhile at that time, other than the lessons themselves, was a tape recorder. 
and it played at three and three quarters speed. Now, people who don't know anything about tape recorders know that that uh, or know everything about tape recorders know that three and three quarters speed is as slow as it gets. Um, and these little tape recorders, you know, basically you spoke into a microphone, did your lesson, you know, whatever they were trying to get you to do, whether it was grammar or enunciation or how to read a commercial or those kinds of things, and you sent your lesson into... You sent your tape in? You sent your tape in to um, Career Academy. They would grade it and then give you all kinds of verbal commands about what you should do next and why you didn't do this right, you got to do this. So it was that kind of back and forth. So at the same time I started that program uh, uh, or the Career Academy lessons, I went to our local radio station. A town of 6,000 people had one little FM radio station in it. And I asked the program director, his name was Art Mann, and and he was the morning guy at that time. And uh, I said, Mr. Mann, I'd like to at least come up to your radio station every now and then and just kind of watch and see what you guys do because I'm taking – Home correspondence courses. (laughs) And, you know, I'm sure he looked at me, uh, and I didn't notice at the time, but I'm sure he was looking at me with a cock eye and saying, this kid has no idea what he's doing or anything. But the fact of the matter is I wanted to get a feel for what it was like at a radio station. And so, at any rate, they allowed me to do that. And I ended up being a gopher for them. I'd get them coffee. Uh, I would go pull the ticker. At those times, we had UPI and AP machines which gave you all your news. So I would pull the the copy and tear it up for these guys and take it into them. There were so many things that I did after a while, but finally they allowed me to do a sportscast on their on their shows. And so I was getting some practical experience at the same time I was taking the home correspondence courses. Then that translated into meeting some guys in the in the profession and talking to them and and those kinds of things, but about eight months uh, into this program, uh, into the correspondence course, um, one of the guys that I met early on was a guy named Chuck Kenworthy and, and got to know him a little bit. And he had left the station and gone to DeKalb, Illinois, and uh, gotten a job in a radio station there. So at any rate, I called, up, called him up one day just to chat with him. And they said, well, Chuck's not with us anymore. And I said, where's he at? And he said, well, he left. He's, he's going to Butte, Montana. Uh, to be an announcer out there, I went, what in the world would he be going from DeKalb, Illinois to Butte, Montana for? So they gave me his phone number. I called him up, and Mr. Kenworthy, uh, I said, what are you in Butte, Montana for? And he goes, well, they have a television uh, television and a radio station in the same company, and they're in a uh, building here in Butte, Montana, and I want to get into tele- television, and so I thought my next shot should be someplace where I could have a chance to get into TV. All that said, and I'm making this much longer than it probably needs to be, but it's a longer story than I'm giving to you at the same time. (laughs) But at any rate, Mr. Kenworthy goes, I'm in Butte, Montana. I want to get into television, but I got a radio show right now. And he said, believe it or not, they're actually looking for somebody for a nighttime job out here to to, uh, do nighttime radio. And I said, well, you're going to have to have experience to do that. You know I don't have any. He goes, well, they're really not worried about how much experience you have. They're worried about how much money they have to pay you, and they're not going to pay you much. He said, would you be interested? And I said, yeah, I would be. He says, well, there's one caveat. You're going to have to, you're going to, have to be interviewed. I said, well, how am I going to get to be Montana? He goes, well, you got to figure that out. 
So I work for the railroad, right? Right. I was just thinking you've got an in. <laughs> so I actually took a 48-hour uh, train ride to Butte, Montana, and interviewed for the job. Long story short, two weeks later, I get a call. They said, you're the guy we want. And so I went to Butte, Montana, and I was just about two-thirds of the way through this correspondence course. Never finished the correspondence course. You dropped out? I didn't drop out. Well, I did drop out. Yeah, you're right. I did drop out. But but it basically boiled down to I'm on the air now. I'm getting an opportunity to be a DJ. At that time, disc jockey is what you were called. And I was getting an opportunity to do this. And you won't believe the shift that I had. 9 to midnight and 3 to 6 a.m. In other words, it was a split shift. They had some kind of program. And they ran at midnight till 3 o'clock in the morning. And then you had to come back on the air after doing three hours from nine to midnight. It was a strange deal. All that said, I was getting, I was basically had the same shift as I had working for the railroad. You were used to those hours. I, I, was, I was used to the hours working all night long. So at any rate, in, in, in between 12 and three, uh, they basically had you do janitor work. You were emptying <laughs> waste baskets and uh, scrubbing floors, not necessarily getting down on hands and knees, but with a mop or anything like that, any place that needed it. This was an old railroad depot, believe it or not, that they were located in. And so at any rate, it all kind of fit together, you know. Um, but at any rate, that was my first opportunity to be in radio. Uh, I, I did drop out of the school because basically I didn't have time or a lot of time to continue on. But I was getting the practical experience you needed as a broadcaster at that point in time. So that's how I got into the business. So you weren't right away in sports. Oh, no. I was a disc jockey for uh, about 14 months. And I did go with the sports crew out there to do some high school games, not for me doing a play-by-play. I basically went as a statistician. But it gave me, you know, kind of a feel for what they did, how they readied themselves to do ball games. And these guys didn't do a lot. I mean, they, they literally were a program director. His name was uh, Don Tuggle. And his color man was the sales manager of the radio station. His name was Tim Callan. And he was an old Irishman, great guy, had a great sense of humor. And Mr. Tuggle was the play-by-play guy. And these guys took me with them to be their sta- – I did their statistics for them. And so they kind of gave me a feel for it. They weren't the greatest play-by-play color combination you've ever heard. They weren't bad, but, but they didn't do a lot of preparation for games. They just basically did it for the money. So at any rate, that was the only experience I had. So I And I knew in Montana there were only, at that time, seven markets uh, that were really big enough to even support one radio station, much less two or three. And there were just not very many jobs out there to be had. So I knew if I was going to get into the sports side of it, and that's why I got into radio in the first place, to be a sportscaster. So I knew if I was going to get a job in that area, I probably needed to get where there were a lot more radio stations to choose from or opportunities, let's put it that way. So I went back to Mendota, Illinois, where I'd had the the job on the railroad and went back to work for the railroad, if you can believe that, while I was going to search for a radio job. Well, lo and behold, it wasn't more than two months after I was back that a station 30 miles from Mendota in Ottawa, Illinois, advertised in Broadcast Magazine, at that time a very popular magazine that all of us who were in or just getting into the business went and, and read every week because they had all these job applications in it. 
So at any rate, um, the station, 30 miles away, uh, advertised for uh, an all-around announcer, but also willing to do play-by-play. So I thought, this is perfect. So I applied for the job, had, got an interview. The gentleman that, uh, <laughs> that interviewed me was a guy named Wally Porso. He was the general manager of the station. And he was a very prof- professorial-looking guy, uh, smoked a pipe, combed his hair down the middle, always wore a suit and a tie. And at any rate, he interviews me, and he liked my tape that I'd had from Butte, Montana, uh, thought that my work was decent. Let's put it that way. I don't know if it was good, bad, or indifferent, but it wasn't very good. But that said, they weren't looking for somebody who was going to make a lot of money either. So at any rate, we interview, and the last thing he tells me uh, after we talked is, now I know you want to do play-by-play. What's your experience level? And I thought, if I tell this guy I've never done a game, he is not going to hire me. And so I said, well, I did the backup games in Butte, Montana. He goes, what's that mean? I said, well, you know, they do. They used to do, they had two high schools there, and they did a game live, and then they did a game on tape. He says, well, do you have a tape of your game? <laughs> so I knew I'd been caught, and I went, no, I really don't have a tape. He said, well, we're not going to worry about that right now. I don't know what he was thinking. <laughs> we'll worry about it after we try you yeah, out. <laughs> I, I have no idea what he was thinking. But at any rate, he goes, that's not going to be the, the make or break deal here that you don't have a tape of your games. But why wouldn't you have a tape of your games, especially if you did the backup games in beat Montana, right? So obviously this this guy wasn't necessarily all that uh, keyed in on how good a play-by-play guy I was. He wanted my, my expertise in other areas, if you want to call what I did expertise. <laughs> At any rate, so I got the job. Two and a half months later, I do my first game. Ottawa High School against Morris High School. Just to give you some indication of how unprepared I was, it was a hot night. I had worn a button-down a collared blue, light blue shirt that now was dark blue as I was ready to go on the air because I was sweating profusely. We did the game in a high school classroom above the football field. That's where they're, that's what they use as their press box. (laughs) And so at any rate, I had the program director at that time was a guy named Jim Frandon for this station. And Mr. Frannon said he would be my color commentator on the broadcast. And 15 minutes into the game, I could see out of the corner of my eye that he was giving me looks that you cannot believe. Like, what are you doing? Do you have any idea that you're actually doing a football game or play-by-play in general? I I knew that I was terrible. I have the tape. No one will ever hear it except (laughs) me. But I have the tape of the broadcast. And it was pathetic. Uh, at any rate, an hour and a half after the game was over with, that's when I took the equipment back to the radio station. In those days, that station signed off at 10 a.m. or 10 p.m. So that was like a half hour after the high school game was over with. And I waited so that I would have to see no one taking the equipment back to the radio station because I was totally embarrassed by my performance, knowing full well that it was awful. Probably set broadcasting back 10 years, if, if the truth be told, and anybody actually listened to it. But the fact of the matter is, I got back to the station with the equipment, and what do I see? Standing in the doorway was the uh, silhouette of Mr. Porso, the guy that had hired me. And I went, this is not going to be good. I walked in. He, the, he didn't say hello or anything like that. He just said, 
I thought you told me that you'd done play-by-play before. And I said, Mr. Porcel, if I'd have told you that, I didn't think that you would have hired me. He said, no expletive. Wow. (laughs) You can only imagine what that was. And he said, you have three weeks. And I thought I was fired. He said, if in three weeks' time you're not demonstrably better, you're out of here. He said, you can't, you can't go on the air and sound that way. So I thought, what am I going to do here? How do I get better that quickly? Well, the thing that I had not done, I just watched these two guys in Butte, Montana. They didn't prepare in any proper way, shape, or form. So it, I thought, what am I going to do here? So I called a guy I'd never met before. He was the play-by-play guy for WLPO in LaSalle, Peru. His name was Art Kimball. I said, Mr. Kimball, you don't know me. I said, I'm from Mendota, but I'm in Ottawa now. I just got the play-by-play job here along with some other duties at the radio station. Uh, I just did my first broadcast, and I've got three weeks to get demonstrably (laughs) better, or I'm going to be out of here. And he goes, well, what do you need? And I said, well, I just need to talk to somebody to get some insight into preparation for these games and how I should go about it. And he says, what are you doing tomorrow? This was a Saturday, I called him. He said, I said, I'm going to church. He said, what are you doing after church? He said, I said, nothing, whatever you want me to do. (laughs) He says, well, come to my house. He gave me directions. I went to his house. He sat with me for five hours that afternoon. And I had a notebook. I took notes. Uh, he He talked about how you prepare for games, who you talk to from the other schools, who you talk to at your own school, how to interview coaches. He, he went through this whole process of just the, the basic fundamental things that you do to get ready to do play-by-play. Then he listened to, and I took a, a tape of the broadcast that I had the night before, which was <laughs> that you so won't let us hear that nobody's ever <laughs> going to hear again. And I took it into him, and he said, well, you got to do this, 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 and this. Stop doing that, 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 and that. <laughs> I mean, we went through this whole thing. And again, he spent five hours with me that day. The stuff that he taught me is what I've used for the rest of my career. And it was so valuable. And I was inducted into the Indiana Broadcasters Hall of Fame about five years ago. And I had not talked to him in like a year's time. And my son, one of my sons was sitting at the table and he said, hey, dad, did you hear about Art Kimball? And I said, no, what are you talking about? And he goes, he passed away last week. And I went, you, you've got to be kidding me. I'm getting an award to go into the Indiana Broadcasters Hall of Fame. And this guy who mentored me, you know, passes away a week before I go in. Uh, it was so emotional. I, I, I blubbered through my acceptance <laughs> speech and everything else. It was just, it was horrible in that sense. But it was such a, an interesting feeling, knowing how much this guy had helped me and, and wishing I could tell him at that point in time. Because, you know, we'd talk back and forth through the years and he knew how successful I had become and, and those kinds of things. But uh, we never really discussed, you know, hey, you're the reason I'm yeah. here. And, and I wanted to be able to tell him that and, and couldn't do it. But that's kind of how I got involved in radio and sports casting and so on. So you're still using his advice today. His preparation advice. Absolutely. And it doesn't matter how familiar you are with 
the team that you're going to call for, you still do these things? Absolutely. There's not. There's nothing. There's that he no winging me. it. No. One of the things that that he was big on, and I still and and this is important because it gets you started doing a broadcast. He felt like the first minute to a minute and a half of whatever you said on the radio should be scripted. This now again, this is his way of doing it, and there are lots of ways to go about doing it. But he always felt like you're if you write it down beforehand. You're going to be able to say exactly. You're, you're going to be able to make each of your points without, uh, you know, f- being flustered or going through a process where you've got to remember. Because when you go on the air, generally speaking, in some respects, you're a little nervous and you want to and you want to be very smooth and confident in what you're doing. He always felt it was hugely important to do that first minute to a minute and a half, and to, to make yourself feel comfortable, if nothing else. And then to be able to get the points that are important in introducing the game that you're going to do. And so I have never stopped doing that. I've written a pregame uh, monologue for all 47 years I've been in this business. And then uh, once you get going, it, you're in the moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, and, and really the things after that, once you're through that first little segment, and if you're fortunate enough to have a color commentator you can bounce stuff off of after that point, which I've been very fortunate to have since getting into the college ranks, so to speak. But, but again, even in when I was doing games by myself as a high school play-by-play announcer, uh, and didn't have color people or or, or a color or color commentators is the, color analysts is the proper term, but but at any rate, when you're doing it by yourselves, even if you if you've gotten into that first minute minute and a half, you're starting to feel confident, comfortable with what you've said. You know you've got the basic fundamental points out there, and now you can expand on those and expand on them and those kinds of things. So, to me, that was one of the greatest pieces of advice I could have ever gotten. If you could talk to Art Kimball one more time, what would you ask him? Well, I don't know that I'd ask him anything, but I would thank him. He was such a special guy, had an unbelievable voice. I mean, so much deeper than mine, and yet he utilized it perfectly for what he was doing play-by-play. Play. There, There is one story about Mr. Kimball that I can tell that helped, made me feel good, at least for myself, when I got the job to come to IU, when I was hired to be the IU play-by-play guy, uh, I was the sport. I became the sports director at WIRE in Indianapolis. I had worked that previous summer at my old radio station in Ottawa, having come back from Terre Haute, Indiana, because they dropped sports. This is again kind of a conglomerated story here, but. When they dropped sports in Terre Haute, I didn't want to go the rest of that winter without doing play-by-play. They dropped it after football. I went back to Ottawa, Illinois, uh, worked in sales, and did play-by-play for the high school teams there uh, and helped a high school kid, mentored him in helping him become a play-by-play broadcaster. And that summer, following that winter, I started looking for jobs, and I went to WJBC in Bloomington, Illinois, which was 60 miles south of where I was at and 60 miles south of where Mr. Kimball was at. And this guy wanted to hire me on the spot to take the sportscasting job at WJBC in Bloomington Normal. 
And I told him at that time that I had applied for a job at Indiana University in Indianapolis for the IU play-by-play job, a job in KUGN in Eugene, Oregon, for the University of Oregon. And I had applied to several others, but I said, of the three jobs, this yours and these two, I said, if I take your job and two weeks from now or a month from now, I am asked to be the play-by-play guy for IU or for University of Oregon, I'm going to leave because as much as I like your radio station and would love to have a job here, I said those two jobs to me are huge in in relation to money and prestige and all those kinds of things. And I would be lying to you if I told you otherwise. I think it was less than three weeks later I was offered the job at IU. I got the job. I called Don Munson, who was this guy at WJBC in Bloomington, Illinois. He goes, so you got that job? I said, yes, I did. He said, all right, who would you hire to take this job? I said, well, the best play-by-play guy in the northern part of the state is Art Kimball at WLPO. And I said, this guy taught me everything I know. He said, well, I'm going to have to contact him. Art Kimball got that job. Uh, you know, that that's how we kept our connection alive mm-hmm. and all those kinds of things. But I got to do something for him. And to me, that was hugely important. We're talking with sportscaster Don Fisher, radio voice of the Indiana University Hoosiers, who spent more than 40 years describing the action for radio listeners. We usually go to break with music selected by our guest, but for this chat with Don Fisher, we thought we'd go to break with another clip of his work. Here's Fisher calling the Purdue game in 2007 where Austin Starr hits a winning field goal. This will be a 49-yard field goal. Dustin Haas will hold. Tim Buck will snap it. And Austin Starr has kicked it that far once before. Here's the snap back. Here's the kick. He's got the leg into it. If it is good, and it is! Austin Starr, a 49 We're back with sportscaster Don Fisher, radio voice of the Indiana University Hoosiers, who spent more than 40 years giving us the play-by-play on radio. So we heard you calling an exciting game. What do you do when it's a real sleeper? Well, honestly, I, I do the same thing that I do in an exciting game. I try to explain what's going on. I try to give you uh, the ability to picture in your mind what's happening. Bad games are as normal as good games are normal. Um, and every game has something in it. You're going to have moments that are exciting. You're going to have moments that are that are down periods. And really, uh, the inflection in your voice will tell a listener uh, what kind of a play it is or what kind of a moment it might be in that broadcast. So you, what you try to do as a play-by-play man is convey – what it is you're watching. And if it's a bad game, I mean, it's pretty easy to tell if somebody's doing a a game that's not very good, this isn't the greatest game you're ever going to see. But the trick is to be able to explain it in a way that it's entertaining enough for the fan, even if it's a casual fan, because that's really who you're going to lose if it's a bad game. 
So you try to make it entertaining enough for them to listen to. And you can do it with stories. You can do it with the, just the inflection of your voice. There are a number of ways you can keep a listener uh, listening to your broadcast, even if it's a bad game. And granted, as hardcore fans are, there are a lot of them are going to turn it off if you're just getting your head handed to you on a platter. But at the same time, there are a lot of people that will listen all the way through. So you've got to entertain, entertain those folks and explain what's going on. And I've had my experiences of with Indiana – We've had football problems, as everybody knows. A lot of the years that I've been doing the play-by-play, I think we've only had like 11 winning seasons in my 42 years. <sighs> so that gives you some idea. I know how to do a losing season or a losing <laughs> broadcast. At the same time, we've had so much success in basketball uh, through all those years, even though it hasn't been as dramatic in the last you know, 15 or so. But at the same time, you, you get a feel for how to go about doing a game and my my thinking process has always been, you never know what's going to happen, and you really don't. And there have been games when people thought we couldn't win, i.e. Right. Missouri right. not too long right. ago, right. Uh, an upset of the 18th-ranked team in the country. And nobody thought that was going to happen, especially after they got beat by Bowling Green the week before. So these things, you can't look at it from a win-loss, good broadcast or exciting game, not exciting game perspective. You do it because it's play-by-play, you're painting the picture for somebody, and you're trying to entertain them enough that that they won't turn you off. Your workplace, at least at basketball games, is a desk in the middle of everything. Mm -hmm. So the fans are really in your ear. How How do you function when they're all around you, let alone when they are flooding the floor all around you? Well, Is it distracting, or are you just... You are huddled so, in. You are so in the moment. We hadn't had a marquee win for at least three years and probably well past that. But at the same time, uh, our fans were grumbling and all these kinds of things, even in Tom's third year, about we aren't winning enough at this point, which I don't know what they're looking at, but they, they weren't looking at what we were really trying to do and where, where Tom Crean had taken this program from and to. So that said, this was a marquee moment. And to beat a team that was the number one team in the country. And, and UK. Yes, and it's one of your greatest rivals. And then, of course, on top of that, we were unbeaten at the time. So everybody's thinking this game is the end-all game, and it looked like we were going to get beat. And if Christian Wofford doesn't make that shot, we do get beat. And it came on the last second of the ball game. Everything just came to play, to fruition at the at the same time, and so it's one of the great moments in IU basketball history. I mean, I I could see what was happening. I mean, it looked like I don't know how to explain it exactly. I've seen a couple of movies. I think one of them was The Mummy's Curse or something like that, where all these bugs <laughs> engulfed this one person who was in the middle of them or whatever. But it looked kind of like that because our fans just came out of the stands and engulfed that floor, and they did it so fast. It was astounding. And, I mean, our players couldn't even move. I mean, they finally got up on the scorer's bench and were, you know, of course, acting out a little bit in their celebration of what was going on, which was tremendous. But we just were engulfed. And the good news is where we sit in our broadcast location, which is 
just above the shelf there as you go up the steps, um, nobody can really jump over the top of us and get to the floor. They're going to actually fall down some steps if they try to do jumping over us. So we didn't have that in our location, which was a good thing. Uh, I know if it, we would have been down on the floor, it would have been chaos for us and our broadcast. But we were in a good location. But you're so in the moment that you really don't notice those things except from an explanation point of what you're trying to tell the audience that you're that you're seeing. So it didn't really bother me, no. And, and here's the other thing. I don't like headsets. We talked about this when we, before we started this interview. And I don't have I, – I generally have just earbuds or something like that in my ears. I want to hear that crowd. That gets me jacked up. It gets me fired up. Uh, to me, the worst broadcast I can do is if I'm in a booth without windows that open in a football game. It seems like you're doing it in your bathroom at mm-hmm. home, you know. And the Missouri broadcast was one of those situations. We had windows that did not open. So you're in what seems to be a sterile environment. And it's just it's not as much fun to broadcast. You don't think you're doing as good a job. Even though we have a crowd mic outside uh, that we can hook into, it just doesn't feel like the same thing. And so I love the crowd noise. I love to be in the crowd because that's part of what mm-hmm. I'm doing here uh, is explaining so that – and the crowd helps you explain it because of their reaction to what the play and, and what the play accomplishes. So to me, that's a part of it. I, that's, I love being a part of, of the broadcast with the crowd itself. You talked about your um... – color analysts. <laughs> You've had several over the years. Yes. What is that relationship like? Do you get uh, some of the Max Skirvin you worked with for years? 24 so years. I'm sure the two of you had a rhythm you knew when the other mm-hmm. one was going to talk, but talk about how you adjust to different people and and what their responsibilities are. Well, to me, and this is the difference between radio and television, uh, and I've done just enough TV to know that I'm not great at it. I also have done enough TV to know kind of what my role is. And it's a complete opposite. A radio broadcaster and a play-by-play guy and a radio broadcast, he is the person's eyes and ears that are that is listening. A television broadcast, the play-by-play guy, is essentially the guy who sets up the color commentator because you can see what the quarterback's doing. You can see that he just threw the ball. You can see the pass being caught. You really aren't a play-by-play guy on television broadcasts. I mean, you're essentially, you're a commentator, and you're really a setup man for the color commentator. And, and that, that's how I view it anyway. That's kind of how I, uh, when I started doing television, I had to learn to shut up because I still wanted to do play-by-play. But then I realized, hey, people can see what I'm talking about here. I don't have to be their eyes anymore. So you try to facilitate as a TV play-by-play person. You're more of a facilitator for the color analyst and uh, for what's happening around the play itself. So in working with all these different people, my explanation to, to a Max Gervin or to a Buck Sewer who does the color for football now or to Royce Waltman who passed away here this past spring uh, who was my basketball analyst, he was, he was tremendous. But I've had a lot of different people in different roles. And they're all easy to work with because they all know 
I try to explain to them exactly what their role is going in. And if they don't handle it the way I'd like them to handle it, and I'm not that I'm the end-all guy here, but I am the play-by-play voice of Indiana. And I've done it long enough now where I can tell you, just let me get through the play, and then if you've got something to say, say it. And football and basketball are two different sports and two different opportunities for color people, color analysts. The football guy has a lot more involvement in the game because you have time in between each play. So you you let that guy go a little bit more. Where the basketball guy has to be very glib, very quick with his comments, and much more, um, not analytical necessarily, but, but much with a better understanding of when he should pop in and pop out and that kind of thing. So, again, it, it, it's a different scenario. And all of these guys that I've had as color analysts have all been very open to understanding, here's what, what do you want me to do? And, and I will tell them. And I will explain to them as we go along because it takes a while to get that timing and everything together because he might, you know, I might pause for just a second, but it's not a pause to let him in. It's a pause to either let the crowd react or something. So all of these things take time. Everybody that I have worked with, I've said, look, it's going to take us three or four ball games to really get acclimated to one another. So if you don't have anything to say, don't say anything. But if you have something to say, you know, I'll give you an opportunity after a play's over with, say what you want to say at that point. Just understand, if it's a football game, as soon as they start lining up to snap the ball, that's when you have to be quiet, and that's when I start again because I have to set up what's going to happen at this point. So there are two different kinds of analysts for football and basketball, and, and they're different kinds of jobs, so to speak. And, um, and those guys have all been very receptive to the things that I've asked them to do. The other people involved are, of course, the coaches, the players. How well do you get to know them, if at all? Maybe it's better not to know them in, in your line of work. You, Gina, have hit it on the head. (laughs) If you get to know them to the point where they're friends, it's very difficult to be objective. And I don't want to say that I'm not friends with all the, I've been friends with most of the coaches, but it's it's not a friendship in which we socialize or that we go out and party or any of those kinds of things. Uh, most of the coaches I've dealt with over the years, just great people. And there's maybe one or two clunkers in there, but not very many. Uh, And they've been great people to deal with. And most of them, because I've been doing it so long, the newer guys now, uh, they realize, hey, this guy's been here a long time. He's worked with a lot of different coaches. Uh, He gets it. And if I didn't get it, I wouldn't be here. Uh, So they recognize that. So it's, I've, I've been very fortunate in that context because not too many guys in my profession are at one school for 40-plus years. It just doesn't happen very often. And, and again, that's a, a blessing from the good Lord up above because I've had that opportunity. Um, but because of that, in my, my role that I've had at Indiana, all these guys seem to acquiesce to well, what do you want me to do? You know, that kind of thing. And I, I don't have to really explain to them because when I interview a coach, I'm not out there, especially as the IU broadcaster, I'm not out there to catch you. 
I'm not out there to get you, get you a gotcha moment, that type of thing. I'm out there just to get basic explanations of what's going on with your team, how you feel about this game, how you feel about the opponent, those kinds of things. Uh, the stuff I, I tell every one of these coaches I work with, hey, I'm just throwing up softballs. All you got to do is hit it out of the park. I'm not trying to hurt you in any way, shape, or form because that's not my job. Right. And I'm sure they know that you covered all of the Bob Knight years, which gave you plenty to talk about on the air. Um, and so whatever they do can't <laughs> that's measure a nice up way to, to put that. It, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it, I had 27 of Coach Knight's 29 years. And so I was well-versed in, in, in how to handle tough interviews, uh, uh, moments of uh, anger, uh, moments of frustration, all the kinds of things that you could imagine with a coach like Bob Knight I dealt with. Um, sometimes not as well as he would have liked, sometimes not as well as I would have liked. Uh, but at the same time, it was a great learning experience because you're not going to get a tougher guy to deal with than Coach Knight. And I'm not putting him down in that context. I'm just stating it from a realistic standpoint. So I, I got a chance to, to work with one of the greatest coaches that's ever lived and to deal with one of the most difficult coaches uh, in the context of having to do interviews with him, not only for pregame shows or in the postgame scenario, but on a weekly basis with a talk show. And some of those were not very good. Some of them were, without question, more than interesting. <laughs> <laughs> some of them are, are highlights and some are lowlights. Well, and there were a lot of listeners no matter what was going on. You knew you had an audience. Right. Exactly right. We always had. I, I don't know what our numbers would have been. I, I was told at one time that we probably had anywhere upwards in the state of Indiana of over 100,000 listeners on any broadcast involving Indiana University, whether it was football, basketball, talk shows. Um, and I know that in football and basketball, we oftentimes had well over a quarter of a million people listening, um, you know, around the state of Indiana. That's how popular Indiana basketball was at, at one point. So, um, and we had 60-plus radio stations at, at one point on our network. It, it's no longer is that size anymore, but it doesn't need to be with some of the bigger signals and that kind of thing that we're on. That said... We, we've always had a tremendous number of listeners to our broadcast. And when Coach Knight was doing the talk shows, we had an amazing audience for those. There's no, no question about it. We're talking with sportscaster Don Fisher, radio voice of the Indiana University Hoosiers. He spent more than 40 years giving us the play-by-play -play for the basketball and football games. We usually go to break with music selected by our guests, but we decided we'd give you clips of his work this time. Here's a clip from 2001 of Kirk Haston hitting the game winner over Michigan State. And Dane gets the ball, pitches it into Coverdale, down to seven, down to six, Coverdale to the left wing. He finds Hornsby, top of the key, right side to Haston, one dribble. He throws it up, and it is good! It's good! We won! Indiana wins! Woo! And they pile on top of Kirk Haston! And here comes students now piling on top of the pile as well. they got to get those kids off of them because somebody could get hurt. They are on the floor here at Assembly Hall. Indiana has upset Michigan State 59-58. to 58. 
in a huge ball game, and what a three-point shot by Kirk Hayes. Welcome back. We've been talking with sportscaster Don Fisher, who spent more than 40 years describing the play-by-play for radio listeners of Indiana University Sports, as well as many other programs in radio. Another big change in the years since you've been doing this, um, talking about personalities, is the emergence of the sportscasting pundit, for one of a better word, the people who have sort of created their own brands around their opinions and their analysis. We've seen this, especially as cable TV and news programs have, have come in since you started. What do you make of the people for whom the sportscasting persona is bigger than the teams and people they cover? Well, I, I guess I don't, I don't think positively about that because, to me, it's about the games, about the teams, and about the players and the coaches. It's not about the broadcasters. To me, the, 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 the media has changed dramatically through the years, um, and in my opinion, not for the better. Uh, because it, it's it, now it's all about being sensational and controversial, and how do you draw an audience? And these kids that are coming out of college today, many of them in from broadcasting schools, many of them come out with a whole different viewpoint of how they should present themselves. To me, it's like you're kind of the background guy, and even though you're not, you, I mean, you aren't, but you don't need to be the news. And a lot of these guys want to be the news. They want to be involved. And um, that's just not how I grew up. It's not how I got into this profession or how I learned it. So I'm out of the loop in regard to how people view broadcasters these days. But to me, it's about if I'm a play-by-play guy, my moment is in those exciting situations involving players and plays. And that's, to me, what's huge. I, I don't agree with being a part of the news as a broadcaster. I just I, That's just not the way I look at it, if that's what you're asking me. Um, at the same time, there are some of these guys that do a pretty good job with it. And I guess that's what some people want to hear and, and see and, and be about. But um, it's just a different world that we live in today. I'm just glad that I'm still a part of it in some way and and can be considered uh, legitimate in what I do. So who do you listen to, if anyone, or watch sports? Well, I, 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 I watch a lot of different sports. Um, I, I watch pro football games. Uh, I, I, I'm a Colts fan, as you would expect, uh, because I do their preseason games. But the people that I, that I really revere – and, and this probably tells you how old I am. I go back to the Vin Scullys of the world, who is, you know, he's 10 years older. or No, he's about 15 years older than I am. And the guy's still doing play-by-play. And he's one of the great storytellers in the history of broadcasting. And I absolutely adore listening to this guy. And I don't get a chance to listen to him a lot. But anytime I do, I will sit down, whatever I'm doing, just to get a chance to hear what he has to say. Because he does things the right way, and um, and and again, his ability to tell stories on the air is phenomenal. It's something that I am not very good at. I'm not a great storyteller in that regard. Not like he is. I, I enjoy very much uh, watching and listening to Joe Buck, who is an Indiana guy, 
uh, number one, but not not for that reason. I didn't even know he was an Indiana guy, you know, five, six years ago when I first heard him, well, not first, but when I'd heard him do a lot of, at that point, a lot of World Series and stuff that he's been doing with both pro football uh, in the NFL and with baseball. And I just think the guy is a solid professional, and he does such a great job of setting things up. I very much enjoy Jim Nance. Some people think he's a little bit too dramatic and things like that. Nah, nah, he's not. He does it the way he knows how to do it, and he's really good at it. Uh, People like that. I I enjoy a lot of the guys. I mean, I, I like guys who are exciting. I loved Harry Carey when he was... Uh, when I was growing up listening to him with the St. Louis Cardinals, I never thought he was nearly as good when he went to the White Sox or to the Chicago Cubs because uh, he became a caricature of himself in many respects. Uh, but when he was with the Cardinals as a play-by-play man, his excitement that he brought to the game was absolutely tremendous. And there's nobody I enjoyed listening to more because I love that excitement that he, that he brought to the, to the game. But but of the new guys, uh, the, again, the Joe Bucks and those kinds of people, and I talk about television people now because I don't know how many people listen to radio broadcasts anymore. I, I mean, I know a lot of people still say that they do listen to me and those kinds of things, but if it's on television and every game seems to be on TV anymore, you, you're much more drawn to watching it and listening to the announcers on those broadcasts. Uh, so... Again, that's another change in in the business that I'm in that I don't necessarily love, but it's just a reality of the situation. But you know there are a lot of people who say, I mute the sound on my TV so I can hear Don call the game. That's a little harder when you have satellite and radio. Yeah. It's it's really much more out of sync than it used to be. Well, but there's still people, that's what they do. When people tell me that, it astounds me. Because HD has changed the the immediacy of the sounds and those kinds of things. And if somebody is literally watching television and listening to me do a broadcast, they're like five seconds ahead of what they're seeing on television. But that's kind of good. Uh, I guess. If it's I a guess. sweaty hand game, it's kind of good to know the answer. <laughs> I guess that's true. I, I'm, I am astounded that people still do it and, and because there is no real timing anymore unless – you have a sports sync radio. I've heard about this. <laughs> I have inquired about that. Yes. They do have radios now that you literally at tip off can adjust a little lever on the bottom of the radio. You can adjust the the delay or delay the broadcast and set it up to the television, which is amazing in itself. That's another thing that technology has brought us, but I just think that that if you and I and I truly appreciate every listener that we have and I wish that everybody still could listen to the immediacy of the game without the delay, because I guarantee you we'd have a lot more listeners in that sense. But, but I know radio is not in the it's not in the back seat because people still don't have television in cars, or if they do, they don't watch them. Uh, if they want to hear the game, they can still turn it on the, that way. A lot of people are working on Saturdays and they want to hear the football games, but they haven't got time unless they hit a, hear it on a headset. So I know we still have lots of people who listen, but let's face it, uh, when, I, when I'm back at home and I'm on my own to watch a game or something like that, I'm not listening to the radio. 
You've won nearly every sports broadcasting award, including, as you mentioned, Indiana Sportscaster of the Year 25 times, the uh, Indiana Sports Writers and Sportscasters Association Hall of Fame in 2004. And in 2010, you were voted into the Indiana Broadcasters Association Hall of Fame. What's next for you? (laughs) Well, I I can tell you that really the only thing I like uh, or that I that I don't like in at this point in my life is I don't like the idea of hanging it up if I can still do it. What does bother me is that my memory is not anywhere close to what I think it should be or what it used to be, and I struggle every now and then. The great thing about this job, though, is that it does keep your mind working. And I, I don't have the recollection that, I, that I'd like to have. I never have had. I've never been a big trivia guy or any of that kind of stuff. But at the same time, the good Lord has kept me from having illnesses that were significant so that my, my brain function's still decent. I still can talk without slurring my words most of the time. All of these things, um, I'm, I'm not ready to give it up. I'm 68. I just turned 68, although that's probably not good for this broadcast. <laughs> but, but at any rate, um, I'm not old enough to, to hang it up in that regard. But I will know when it's time, and I will not go past my time because I don't want people to remember that I was really bad at the end. I want them to remember that I was pretty good when I was good. And that's, that's most important to me. We've been talking with sportscaster Don Fisher, who spent 40 years describing the action for radio listeners of Indiana University men's basketball and football games, and he's been doing the preseason telecast for the Indianapolis Colts. Here's one last clip of some of Don's work, describing some action from a 2002 game at Rupp Arena. It was the NCAA Regionals, and A.J. Moya blocks a shot to upset number one Duke. I'm Gina Asher. Thanks for listening. Four seconds left. Williams at the free throw line. Not a good free throw shooter. Shot is up. Missed it. Oh, no. Boozer. He missed. Tip up now. No, he's got the rebound. And he wins. They've done it. Indiana's done it. They've knocked them off. And they are roaring at the midcourt line. These two ball clubs going crazy. The Hoosiers have beat Duke 74-73. to 73. The program you just heard was recorded in October of 2014. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found on our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios at Indiana University. James Gray is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles. For WFIU, thanks for listening.